Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back. We have a legendary interview with the legendary Tony Gallippi from BitPay. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Trace. <laughs> I heard a joke once that someone had been introduced as legendary, and he said, you know, you become a legend. And the host was like, no, I have no idea. He was like, you just outlive everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> when did BitPay get founded? You know, BitPay was started in May of 2011. That was a year where you really only had three Bitcoin companies. You had Mt. Gox, BitPay, and BitInstant. Of that generation of companies, we're the only one left standing. So I guess we have outlived the others <laughs> You're from that era. Legendary, legendary. <laughs> March of 2011, Bitcoin's at about a dollar, dollar fifty, before the big run up to thirty-two dollars in June of 2011, when Mt. Gox had problems, like usual. We've seen just so much happen since then. Bitcoin was pure potential back then. There was nothing actually done. And now BitPay has the majority of billion dollar plus merchants, right? Like, what are the numbers? Nine out of 15, I think? Yeah, we started the year with no public companies or billion dollar companies accepting Bitcoin. But then right away in January, we added Tiger Direct and Zynga. You know, we followed it up with Rakuten, Warner Brothers, uh, Newegg, and we got a couple other ones in the pipe. So, yeah, we've got a bunch. This is really exciting. What type of trends are we seeing with the larger institutions coming into Bitcoin. Are we seeing uh, payment processor integrations, point of sale integrations? What are the overall trends for bringing Bitcoin to the merchants? So some of the trends that we see from the bigger companies nowadays is they want to do something with Bitcoin. They don't know what, but they see a lot of buzz in the press and they see maybe some other smaller competitors getting fantastic press for doing something with Bitcoin. And they say, well, gee, we should do something with Bitcoin too. What do we do? So in many cases, they're looking through their backlog and they're not really able to find any time to squeeze anything in. So they're looking more for partnerships, right? They're looking as, well, how can we work with a Bitcoin company to say we're doing something, um, but you know, work with BitPay, let them power the Bitcoin acceptance. We can refer people to them. Um, so companies like Global Payments are a great example, right? They, they'll eventually integrate us into their platforms and all of their enterprise solutions that their customers use. Right now, they're just referring merchants to us who want to accept Bitcoin, but at least it shows that they're doing something. Their salespeople are engaged. And so when they get asked about it, they can say, yes, we have an answer to that. BitPay is based out of Atlanta. You've got offices in Buenos Aires, uh, the Netherlands, New York, San Francisco. Did I miss any? We have got one person in Washington, D.C. as well. Oh, okay. So. And why are you based out of Atlanta? It's interesting. You know, my co-founder and I both went to college there, so we do have some roots there. But it's a fantastic town for financial technology. The majority of credit card processing and all types of electronics payments are actually done through Atlanta. <laughs> 
I think in the U.S. it's like 70% of electronic transactions and credit cards are done through Atlanta. The Atlanta Fed runs the ACH system. And a lot of the initial check clearing uh, and check processing companies were built there. And then credit card processing became more popular. So there's a, a huge infrastructure of companies that do payments. And Bitcoin is a natural evolution and a natural next step for payments. So since we're there, we're able to recruit some of the best talent from some of these companies. Because we're there, the infrastructure, the, the community understands what a payment processor does uh, because they probably know somebody who works in an industry. So we've already been able to, to hire people from Global Payments, from Visa, um, from TSIS. So from some more of the established players that have a reputation from the, the credit card industry, uh, we're able to bring more experience into how we build our product. We want to make sure that we build a product that merchants are able to use. It's something they're familiar with, but takes advantage of all the new potential that Bitcoin can bring. How many employees is BitPay up to now? We're over 80, somewhere between 80 and 85. 80 and 85. And you're kind of shy, like, you know, someone from Visa, but I mean, you got one of their major compliance officers, right? Well, well, he was their head of AML for all of Visa. For all of Visa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this idea that we're just kind of running a little ragtag operation in Bitcoin and we're not like trying to be compliant with regulations and things like that, not only the head of compliance from Visa now over BitPay, but I think ASBA, she came from the Federal Reserve. Uh, yeah. Over payments, and she's one of our what? She's our regulatory counsel. Regulatory so she's counsel. A, she's a payments attorney. She worked with Paul Hastings before taking the job at the Atlanta Fed. But at the Atlanta Fed, she was in the risk group, uh, understanding the risks involved in new types of payments, um, what they should look for from a, a structural perspective as well as a, a consumer protection standpoint. So she she has a lot of great experience. You know, Tim as well from Visa, their former head of AML. Uh, before that, he was a bank examiner at the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. So he's got six. 15 years as a bank examiner and five years as a uh, you know AML officer. So we're bringing in some heavyweights that understand you know, how we should be setting our policies to prevent bad guys from using our system. There's lots of different tricks that criminals will use to try to gain advantage to your system and try to use it undetected. These guys know a lot of the tricks that the criminals use and we're rapidly enhancing our policy from the strong policy that was to be even stronger. This is just critical for banking partners, for integration partners, for payment processors you might work with. It gives publicly traded companies like Zynga uh, confidence to use you guys. Also, you know, when we're looking at counterparty risk, Tim Draper, he recently, he had won the $20 million worth of Bitcoins in the U.S. Marshalls auction, and he bid on the other 50,000 Bitcoin block. You guys have processed some really big payments. I mean, like a million dollar payment, Ferraris, all types of fun stuff, Teslas. Like, what are some of these large transactions you process? And I mean, have there been any issues with actually clearing and settling and giving merchants dollars? I mean, all of that requires a tremendous amount of kind of cash and working capital, both in Bitcoins and dollars, all of this. Can you speak a little bit to that? Like why companies that are looking to integrate Bitcoin, why they need to choose a reputable payment processor that can really handle everything? That's where our venture funding comes in. So we need to have operational capital uh, to be able to run a business. And right now we've got operational currencies. Uh, we've got five. So we manage a treasury of Bitcoins, dollars, euros, Canadian, and pounds. And constantly we're managing our portfolio to make sure we have enough of each currency. And so we're, we're always in the markets trading. We've done a handful of million dollar plus transactions. We've done a couple of houses. 
We haven't done a yacht yet, although we do have a new yacht dealer that, that accepts Bitcoin. So it's interesting today in the markets. I would say a year ago, or maybe a year and a half ago, the markets did not have enough liquidity. You know, we couldn't have sold a million dollars worth of Bitcoin in a day without dramatically moving the markets. But things have changed. There's a lot more participants now. We can move a million dollars a day and you wouldn't even notice that we're trading just because there's a lot more volume and a lot more more buyers and sellers in the market. Um, we also have a lot of hedge funds that want to accumulate Bitcoin positions. So when we have these huge spikes, we also have some off-market opportunities to sell those. You'd be surprised how many Wall Street firms are starting to accumulate Bitcoin positions that, that aren't talking about Bitcoin yet. Uh, there's a lot going on behind the scenes. As well as some, uh, you know, some private, you know, family wealth funds and, and things like that. Yeah, because we've got, like, at least as investors in BitPay, we got Matt Mullenweg from WordPress, uh, Shaquille Khan from Spotify, Jerry Yang, right? Richard Branson. Richard Branson. Uh, who else have I forgotten? Jim Robinson from RR and E Ventures. His uh, father, uh, who I met, was CEO of American Express. And, yeah, for seventeen years. He for was seventeen chairman. years, and he's so they spun off First Data, Western Union, right? So they understand. Yeah, and his know, father was very interested in what's going on in this Bitcoin and this payment space. Yeah. Like, who else have I failed to mention? Index uh, uh, Ventures, yeah. Index Letter, last round out of London. Of course, we have Arthur Levitt, the former chairman of the SEC. He's on our advisory board now, and and Arthur's really engaged. You know, when we first talked to him, you know, he had kind of a, a, a research that he was doing to try to get faster settlement for securities. And, and he said, wow, I would love to have a world someday where I can have you know instant settlement or near instant settlement to reduce that T, T plus, plus three, three counterparty risk that somebody could fail to deliver. And failure, yeah, FTDs is just... <laughs> failure to deliver. <laughs> um, so when we first talked to him about Bitcoin, he was very interested in the fact that now for the first time in our history, we have a financial transaction that can immediately settle with no counterparty risk. And the ability for that to be used in all types of contracts and trades is, is pretty interesting. Switching gears a little bit, and, and really Stephen Parrish should probably be the one I, I ask these questions to, but I've seen on Reddit, you know, some of the developers, they, they've gone and built applications on top of Coinbase's API or blockchain's API, and then for whatever reason, the APIs go down and they just, like, it completely throws their entire businesses into tailspins because, uh, like, they can't make all these API calls because these these APIs, it's kind of a layer between the people and the Bitcoins themselves. And BitPay seems to really leading the charge with things like BitOff, Insight, Copay, all APIs that help developers interact directly with the blockchain without having BitPay in the middle there as a central point of failure. Can you discuss a little bit about that, the overall strategy, and how that's helpful not just for BitPay, but also for the Bitcoin community in general, whether you use BitPay services or not? Sure. So you see a lot of these applications, and most of them, quite honestly, have been born out of hackathons. Something where in a one or two day period, you want to get a working product. And so you'll do the simple thing that is to connect up to a, a proprietary API that'll get you the information that you need. Uh, it's a great proof of concept, but that's not how you can build a reliable, scalable business, right? You want to try to remove that third party dependency if you can. So what we've built actually is a JavaScript library called Bitcore. What Bitcore allows you to do is interact and do all the functions you need to do with the Bitcoin network and talk directly to the network. You're talking directly to the mesh net. Um, and you can do it all in JavaScript, which means you can run it on your server, you can run it in your browser, you can even potentially put it in your operating system. It's very easy to build mobile apps with it. Um, so you don't have that dependency anymore. Um, it requires 
a little bit more time and experience with programming to because JavaScript, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you can make a mess of things. Uh, but with Bitcore, we're really trying to make it into uh, a nice operating system for Linux. And, and with JavaScript being the language of the internet, uh, we think that there's a, a huge potential there. So it is an open source project and we got it going. We've recently refactored it, tried to organize it a little bit better. Um, there are a lot of other people that contribute to it as well. And we're hoping to make it grow and make it stable as a foundation for lots of people to build applications on top of. And at the end of the day, there needs to be a good common operating system for Bitcoin, kind of like Red Hat for Linux, um, that is well-maintained uh, and well-documented uh, that people can use, and that gives you all the power you need to run it yourselves and not have any dependencies. And just a tremendous service to the Bitcoin community in general, and the developer community, whether it's somebody coming in and wants to integrate Bitcoin into their apps or whatever, it's like, just use this. You know, mm -hmm. Free, open source, don't have to use BitPay to use it. Uh, really helpful. I try to make the interviews objective. Of course, I'm an investor in BitPay, so somewhat biased there. There are always a ton of threads. Uh, I tried to make my payment and it never went through or blah, 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 all these types of things. And there seems to be a big root cause. And that's that Coinbase, which is one of BitPay's major competitors, doesn't broadcast transactions. So we got consumers that make a payment from Coinbase, but BitPay never sees it because Coinbase never broadcasts it to the network. And then the 15-minute time window expires or things like that. Can you talk a little bit about, like, there are a lot of new people listening to the podcast. If, if they're going to use Bitcoin, how can they use it in a way that if they're using Coinbase, the other participants in the Bitcoin ecosystem can interact with them? And that way they're just not frustrated. Sure. You know? So when we create an invoice for a merchant, which happens when a customer has an intention to pay, right? I'm trying to check out. Um, it could be in a retail store where you're trying to pay for something so you can walk out the door with the merchandise, or it could be online where you're trying to pay. We have to deal with the FX component of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin has a fluctuating exchange rate. So we need to create a, a small window where we can lock in that exchange rate so that the buyer can check out and we can guarantee that rate so the merchant gets their funds. Right now, that window is 15 minutes. We decided on that four years ago. We haven't changed it. We may change it in the future, but uh, that's the window that, that we have today. And it's enough time to get out your phone and scan the QR code and make your payment. It is. I mean, most customers pay within one or two minutes. We could actually reduce Probably that. Probably shorter than that. I always pay within 30 seconds. Sure. It's really not that hard. <laughs> it's, it's not that hard, right? When we first built it, you know, most people were using Bitcoin QT. They may have had to wait for their blockchain to sync up before they could right. broadcast a transaction. You typically don't have those issues today. Use things like Bread Wallet or Blockchain.info's mobile phone wallet. Yeah, yeah. The idea of waiting for your wallet, wallet to sync up before you can send a payment when you're sitting there, that, yeah, that doesn't happen We have anymore. the thin clients and SPV clients now. Like, it's Correct. just not an issue. It's not an issue. Uh, but we still do have that window. And, and so that, that gives an opportunity for the customer to load their wallet and pay. Um, we've tested all the wallets out there. Some of them are extremely fast to send the transaction. It happens in a matter of milliseconds. Um, some of them take longer. You know, we monitor the mesh network, so we don't wait for any confirmations. As long as we can detect the transaction on the mesh network and we feel that, that a majority of the nodes that we're connected to think it's valid, you know, we'll go ahead and mark it as paid. And that typically takes on the order of, you know, tens of milliseconds. Some of the wallets take longer to pay, and it's not the user's fault. The user logs into their wallet and says, send. But that wallet is running a service where it's up to the wallet then to actually sign and broadcast that transaction for that user, right? The user doesn't control the keys. They can't sign and broadcast it themselves from the, their, their client application. They're asking that party who is holding their keys to be able to do that for them. 
Um, and this is the case where we have seen cases where it takes several hours. I don't think there's been a case where it's never been broadcast, but there could be a significant delay. A delay of longer than 10 or 15 minutes you know, could cause our invoice to time out, could cause us to uh, you know, have to do a lot of work on our end to try to resolve this late payment that came in from the customer, even though it wasn't the customer's fault. So, you know, we, we recommend certain wallets and we don't recommend others. We also don't recommend trying to use like an exchange account to send your Bitcoins because those could be done at the at the time that the exchange wants to process that withdrawal. And there could be issues with refunds uh, if you're sending from a, an exchange address or an, an address where you don't hold the keys to it. Correct. If you have any type of a commingled account... Um, or the service you're using is commingling the funds from all the other users, you have no control over the keys and, and how funds come in and out, right? You're reliant on the application that they have built to be able to do that for you. So we recommend that people actually use wallets, and there's plenty of them now, and they're just as easy to use as these account-based services, if not more so, that give you the availability to, to be able to sign and broadcast transactions right away. And the major problem that we see is in retail, and we're getting a lot more retail merchants now accepting Bitcoin. It's not just e-commerce anymore. So if you walk into a store and you ordered some ice cream and you sent the payment from your account and it takes 15 minutes to get there, you know, your ice cream is going to melt before you have the opportunity to yeah. actually enjoy it because that store owner is probably not going to let you leave you know, until he sees his payment. Again, we don't wait for any confirmations. We just need the transaction to hit the mesh network with a reasonable probability that it's going to get confirmed. Yeah, I think this is just really important basic stuff but until people have used bitcoin a little bit they just aren't aware of a lot of this it's kind of like riding a bike you know like you kind of you learn a little bit as you go and you learn from experience what not to do and at least in my case like i just don't see any reason to use coinbase as a payments wallet where they're asking me to tweet out to my friend that i bought a lemonade or something and it i mean none, none of that is mission critical to getting a payment done we need to keep Bitcoin simple, I think, in terms of a community. Like the less moving parts we have in any particular area, the easier it's going to be for consumers to use it and the less chance for something to go wrong. You know, sure. whether that's the wallet that we're using, the, the way it broadcasts the payments, the API that we're using as developers. I mean, let's just remove the dependencies and the moving parts if we can to make for the most seamless user experience possible. That's at least kind of my opinion. And then you're less frustrated when the transactions don't get broadcast and there's an issue and it's not marked as paid and then you don't get the tickets or like whatever it is you're trying to buy because you missed the time window uh, i mean it like that's really really frustrating and it happens all the time with credit cards i mean i hate making payments online with credit cards oh you need to call your credit card because it, it's been placed on hold because you made the payment from who knows what ip address because you're traveling i mean you don't have any of those issues with bitcoin but you can still run into other issues like we just talked about sure and so as long as you're kind of but they're man-made issues that don't need to be there yeah but they don't need to be there at all so you, i yeah. mean you can remove those if you want to if you kind of yeah. take the training wheels off as you're riding the bike yeah. around yeah and i understand the the desire to try to make it easier and integrate more with social media i, I get that because because that helps get new users to use the product. But you can still keep it just as safe and powerful and secure with a great user interface. You don't have to sacrifice security for usability. Looking on the pessimistic side, what are you most worried about in the Bitcoin world? Like what, what kind of keeps you up at night? You know, there's been a lot Besides of... Besides all the parties at the conferences. <laughs> oh, well, that, that keeps you up at night for sure. Um, you know, th there's a lot of talk from different governments 
thinking that they can make their own blockchain currency. They don't want Bitcoin. They like blockchain technology, whatever that means, and they want to create their own coin. And it could be a situation a few years from now where a government will issue its own coin and ban Bitcoin, but only let people use their own government-issued cryptocurrency. Like Ecuador, Bolivia, kind of little rumblings down there about yeah, that. Yeah, they're trying. Whether they could pull it off, I'm not sure. Right, Canada tried it with the mint chip. They they retracted it that. flopped on its face. Yeah, it, it just didn't get any interest. However, if you have a major central bank saying this is going to be the cryptocurrency of our country and nothing else is allowed, and they've got the the police and the and the Department of Revenue and, and financial services to enforce that, um, you know, it could be a problem for Bitcoin. So I think we have to fight to keep Bitcoin open and free. It's like other countries trying to, to block off the internet and saying, well, no, we're going to have our own internet in our country and, and it's going to be sanitized or, or only content viewable for the people in our country. And we're going to put up this firewall and not let our citizens see the outside world. Yeah, but even when where we've seen that happen, whether it's the Arab Spring or uh, Erdogan in Turkey blocking YouTube because they didn't like them talking about the corruption that his son was engaged in and he was engaged in. Uh, so he blocked YouTube, and then there's VPNs. And now with Facebook and a lot of these initiatives to get the Google blimps out and the balloons, we're just seeing in the way that mesh networks are working. I mean, the Internet's just kind of routing around all of that. I mean, why would a developer go and build on one of these closed-loop systems anyways? It's just, you well, it's, know, it's I, not necessarily I, I think the it's developers. an issue because it, there's a lot government can do in terms of tax policy and... Uh, and even kind of, you know, I guess they could try and ban smoke signals or like any other form of competing cryptocurrency, but it would still be, I think it would be very difficult for uh, an economy like that to get the, the, the real tech traction because you have to have all the experimentation to really know that your blockchain quote-unquote technology is going to be secure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to, you know, you, you don't get everybody banging on it. Sure. I mean, you know, it, it's got to be battle tested. Um, but, you know, you're you're looking at a situation where if it does become banned or illegal to use, people may still use it, but major companies won't. You know, major public companies are not going to take the risk of their officers going to jail. Um, well, well, right. You know, but like the major companies in North Korea are just operating on 50 year old obsolete technology. I mean, that's what happens when you when you ban uh, new technological innovations like yeah, people don't use it because they want to be compliant with the law, but they're just stuck in the past. They get yeah. vastly outcompeted by people that do have access to, yeah. the, to the tools. It would be a huge competitive disadvantage. I mean, just take a look, compare North Korea to Hong Kong, right? You've got a, a very central planned uh, restrictive state, and you've got what was an experiment in a, an extremely open free market state. You know, Look at what 50 years in, in each has done and what it's produced. Um, and I think jurisdictions and countries now that are trying to make the decision of what should they do with Bitcoin? Should they clamp down on it and ban it? Or should they make it and try to support it open and free? Look at the situation between North Korea and Hong Kong. Which would you rather have your country be? Yeah, and Facebook, Google, Amazon, Yahoo, all very helpful from the Snowden papers in terms of uh, U.S. intelligence. So, I mean, even Ben Bernanke's come out and said that virtual currencies hold a lot of promise. So, I mean, are these threats that we're looking at, at least in the Western world, or are you, you thinking more in terms of, like, China or Russia or Ecuador? Or, I mean, what markets are – is it really – that much of a concern right now that it does keep you up or not, or is it just kind of a larger 
trend that could that could kind of affect everything? Yeah, I think the countries that would be most likely to attempt to, to ban or block Bitcoin are the ones that have the strictest capital controls today because they want to try to protect their own currency. It is a protectionist measure and prevent your currency from leaving your country. If people can't get their currency out of the country through banks, they're going to get it out a different way. They're going to try to figure out how to buy Bitcoin and then move the Bitcoins out of the country. So the net result is the same, right? You've got money leaving the country and it's leaving for a reason. It's because they're trying to flee inflation or some political policy that they don't agree with. We'll have to see. I, I think Ecuador and Bolivia are probably too small to really... They don't matter that much. Yeah, to really matter. But if you start Argentina, to see it in Argentina, Venezuela, Venezuela um, yeah, I mean, even India is starting to get some inflation. Um, uh-huh. yeah, India has some capital controls. I mean, that's a population of a, over a billion people it's in It's interesting. Country. India just relaxed all their gold import rules. Yeah. Uh, so they're letting all the gold kind of flow into India. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can import, but I don't know if you can get it out. Well, gold just goes into India and yeah. gets worn around the neck. True. What... You know, we're, we're kind of getting close to close to our time. What are you most optimistic about in Bitcoin? I mean, well, actually, what are like the two or three things you're most optimistic about? Because it's just moving forward like never before on so many different fronts. Sure. I think we'll continue to see business adoption of Bitcoin. And I'm excited to see some of the things we have in our pipeline that could hit in the next, you know, couple of months. You know, it's really going to help, you know, raise more awareness of Bitcoin and, and give more people a reason to use it. The more types of items that you can spend with Bitcoin, you know, the more likely you are to, to try to engage in, with the technology. So I, I think that when you look at micropayments and tipping, that is just a very recent trend that's come out. I think it has a, a lot of potential to really expand the user base of Bitcoin in a way that is fun, engaging, but again, you know, not a mission critical type type situation, right? You know, you're not trying to, to buy a real cupcake. You're just trying to send somebody money so that they can get their own cupcake or a dollar. And if it takes five or 10 minutes to get there, that's not a problem. However, they have built their own system where, you know, it's all internal and, and, it, and it does get there instantly. So the whole concept of being able to pay it forward and do tipping, I think, is is incredibly exciting. And where that's going to go in the next 6 to 12 months, uh, it could potentially increase the number of Bitcoin users by a factor of 5 or 10. Um, because there's a lot of people that use social media and being able to send and receive, you know, a dollar's worth of value, you know, from your friends uh, is really exciting. Well, it really helps uh, find out the authenticity of the social media. Uh, we've seen that, you know, there, there could be all types of uh, public company, big companies that are running like marketing campaigns or viral campaigns that really they're just funding it all, or there might be other actors out there, but you start raising the costs in terms of the expectations and, you know, you make a good comment, you get tipped a dollar or five dollars or things like that. People can start voting with their money on the ideas that they think are good. I mean, if you've ever seen the YouTube comments section, it's just such a mess. But if comments begin to get rated based on how much they've received in tips or things like that, then all of a sudden we might be getting much more authentic social media, Yeah. which, you know, these are all unintended consequences of having this type of a technology to be transferring value over the Internet, right? Sure. And if you're actually trying to, to look at metrics of social media to measure, you know, quality or measure, you know, adoption, 
so much of that can be forged today. Oh yeah. Uh, there's an estimated like you know 80% of Twitter accounts are fake or something, and you can actually go into a profile and there's a service that'll run some analytics and you can analyze somebody else's profile to see how much of their followers are fake. Um, and some of those might be false positives, but they tend to get it right, or at least it's consistent across the board to measuring from profile to profile. Um, you can't fake that when people are actually giving money. Well, I guess you could, but ChangeTip, you know, ChangeTip.com, they could implement some types of policies and begin to sell some of that data. Uh, and, and so they could know whether the accounts are being faked or not, sure. the tipping it, amounts. Because I guess you could tip back and forth yourself, right? Like... So, I mean, I guess you could hack some of it, but it's going to get a lot more difficult to hack because when you begin data mining all that from the outside in, you're able to, you know, you can start creating the webs and see who's tipping who and how much and figure out where those relationships are. And, you know, it might get built right into Google's uh, algorithm, Mm -hmm. just like social media did. It became very important for Google to be measuring social media to determine like relevancy and credibility and very well we could see tipping uh, impact the search algorithms the same way because it's so important for Google to make sure that those results they serve to their customers are accurate and authoritative and and stuff like that and that and that whole industry is just one big game right the SEO sure. game so yeah like, you, you want to they want to try to filter out the bots and and try to reach well what is the real organic interest and at the very minimum I think change tip charges like a one percent fee or something so if someone is going to be running some type of a bot campaign to increase their tipping profile they're going to be losing a little bit on every hop. So, like, how sustainable is that going to be? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is all really exciting. I mean, Bitcoin has the potential to disrupt so many different industries where it's just totally kind of an unforeseen consequence. Are there any other industries that you kind of see uh, potentially being disrupted like that? You know, I, I think the entertainment industry has been disrupted enough with digital content, but they're about to be disrupted again <laughs> with Bitcoin because we've gone from, you know, selling albums online to selling songs one at a time online in a, in a system, a marketplace like an, an iTunes, for example. But you still have a really high cost structure. It costs $1.29 for a song. That's what the customer has to pay to purchase it. How much of that money actually goes to the artist? Probably about... 15 cents. Apple's going to take a big chunk off the top. You got the distributor, the promoter, uh, marketing's the artist. It gets about 15 cents. With Bitcoin, an artist could actually sell their content directly on their own website for 25 cents. And make the same amount of money per Actually make more. make more. And customers download. are excited because it's one-fifth of the cost, right? You've consolidated an industry down to where an artist can sell directly to a consumer without any, yeah, completely uh, without any distribution channel. Completely peer-to-peer. And it's a much lower price for the consumer and a much higher uh, net for the artist, I, I think there's going to be a huge influx. Yeah, and that's that's not even counting the different torrent options. Like I think one of the torrents out there can actually integrates Bitcoin like right into the torrent. So when the torrents downloaded, bitcoins are automatically sent or something like that. So I mean, it's sure like it's just very fascinating how this technology is changing so many different areas. Yeah, and, and if you look at the battle uh, that Kim.com is facing, right for uh, you with know, being mega able, upload. yeah, with mega for you know letting people store stuff in the cloud, 
um, you know, it's a, still a problem we have today. You can't send large files over email. You just can't, right? You have to put them somewhere and then send the, the person a link. So whether it's uh, Dropbox or Google Drive or every company has a, has a cloud storage site nowadays. You know, one of the challenges that all of those sites face is how do you fight against pirated content? Um, you know, and so what Kim.com has done is said, I'm just going to encrypt everything from the moment that it's uploaded until the moment that it's received at the other end. Which everybody has to do now because of the Snowden leaks. Yeah, you have to. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're archiving your, your financial records and your taxes, you need to encrypt them locally and, and store them on a, a cloud-hosted server. So if you lose your laptop or um, need to retrieve them later, right, you can go back and get them. But you can't have everybody else looking at your financial records and looking at your tax returns and, yeah, and how much you make. And Dropbox had the authentication hole and so people were able to get into other people's Dropbox accounts without the passwords or something like that. It'd be sure. kind of horrible. You have all yeah. your receipts and financials batched to Dropbox automatically with something like Shoebox and then bam, you're just leaking it all over the internet. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but Bitcoin offers a tremendous value here because one of the reasons why there is such an incentive to pirate content and to steal content is because it's overpriced. And there's no way to pay the merchants. Right. The transaction. Yeah, if you don't want to spend $1.29 for a song, then you're going to go out and you're going to try to download it illegally. However, if you could buy that song legally for $0.25, cents, it's probably not worth your time exactly. to go and, and find a way around the system. You're going to waste more in time than the $0.25 cents to just go ahead and buy it legally outright. Whoops. So I think you know, Bitcoin is going to force market pricing to a point where you could actually significantly reduce copyright infringement because you're pricing the content at, at where it should be. Yeah, which is what we saw with the iPhone from Steve Jobs is the unbundling of albums with the uh, iTunes store. And so, you know, it, it's giving the consumer what they want at the price point they're willing to pay for it. Yeah, I and don't want to spend a, $15 on a whole album. I just want one song or two songs. And the iTunes store sold like tens of billions of songs now. I mean, sure. they've, they've generated tons of revenue for everyone in the ecosystem. You know, th this has been fascinating. Uh, I, I have to get on top of the panel, so we, we got to close this up. But thanks so much. We've had the legendary Tony Gallippi, uh, founder of BitPay, testified before the U.S. Senate, all types of stuff, just moving Bitcoin forward. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. All right. Thanks, Trace. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. 